The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Hey, thanks for joining us today. We are in the Gospel of Luke. We've been navigating through that now for months. I'm just thrilled that you're sticking with us. And even if this is your first time, today I want to unpack a passage found in Luke chapter 6. It's a beautiful, beautiful grouping of scripture that just shows the heart that Jesus has. The heart that Jesus has for those who are hurting, those who are distant, those who are in need. That is the heart of God. God is for you. And I I want you to know that just as we begin today, God is for you. He loves you. And we're going to see yet another story where the religious leaders of the day are trying to trap Jesus. If you were with us last week, we talked about Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath simply is just a day of rest. It's a day to cease, to feast in him. We talked about how Jesus declared in front of these same religious leaders that he is Lord of this day, that this day was not created for God. It was created for man because God knows that man needs to rest. They need to cease from time to time from their labor, be recharged by him. And yet, probably the very next Sabbath, the very next Saturday, we find Jesus in a synagogue. That was the day where the Jewish worshipers would go to the synagogue, hear the word of God read, they would worship. So they're in the synagogue just where they need to be. And it's there that we pick up this story. It's not really part two of the same narrative because Luke says it happened on a different Sabbath day, but we see the same kind of theme. The religious leaders trying to trap Jesus, trying to get him out of their territory, out of their lives. They're done with him. And one main reason why, he's got a lot of people that are interested. He's got a lot of people that are following him. He's got a lot of people that want to be around him. And that threatens their livelihood. That threatens their comfort. That threatens their doctrine and their theology. Everything that has made them who they are is being threatened by this Jesus. He's the problem. So they've got to figure out a solution to the problem. And the solution is to get him out of here. Luke chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 is where we pick up the story. On another Sabbath, on probably the next Saturday, he went into a synagogue, that's Jesus, and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. We don't know what happened for sure, but it was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. Now, there's a second century historian named Jerome. He says that this man with the withered hand, he was a mason, okay? So he worked with his hands for a living. Maybe he was injured on the job. It's it's highly likely. But regardless, without intervention by Jesus, he can no longer provide for himself. His livelihood has been erased And he's sitting there in church on Saturday, listening to this man named Jesus, who he probably knows has the ability to heal him. 
He's listening. Maybe he's hopeful. Maybe he's anticipating something great happening. I don't know. But the religious leaders are sitting there on the side of the room and they're watching. Oh, oh, what if Jesus does this? What, what if he heals this guy? Oh, it's the Sabbath. If he does this, we've got him. If he heals him, we've got him. Because it was according to oral tradition against the law for someone to provide medical assistance to a non-life-threatening situation on the Sabbath. Can, can you believe this? The oral tradition, so, so what it is, is you have the Bible that lays out some laws and some rules for the Sabbath, but then the oral tradition was how man taught those laws. And so the oral tradition said this, if someone is in a life-threatening situation, you can provide them aid. Okay, they've fallen, they're bleeding out, you can try to stop the blood. But say they have a broken bone. <laughs> the oral tradition said you can't set that bone. You can't set that bone until the next day because that would be work and God would not be pleased with you. Can you believe the craziness of that teaching? And so you've got a guy that's clearly, clearly in pain, clearly has a problem, but it's the Sabbath. So if Jesus is going to fix him, provide medical attention to him, and I don't know how a miracle is medical attention, but we we can get into that later. If Jesus is going to heal him, he is going to break the law, the Sabbath law. And so the Pharisees and the religious leaders go, this is going to be good. Because we've seen that Jesus is compassionate. We've seen that he's kind. We've seen that he's capable of stepping into people's misery, to their hurt, to their brokenness. We've seen him do it time and time again. But if he does it today, we've got him. We've got him. This is going to be good. Luke chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up. Get up. Come up here. Stand in front of everyone. So the man got up and he stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, he spoke to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. I don't think to the crowd. I think he looked to the side of the room and he asked them, he said, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? Which is, which is right? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to destroy a life? What would God want more? Jesus is furious. And and you can understand why. You can sense the room, right? But what's better? Hey, religious leaders, what's better to do nothing for this man or to change his forever? What's better? Should I do good? Should I do evil? You tell me. What should the response be? What does God desire more? Jesus already said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, so I'm going to do what I want to do. But he's questioning the religious leaders. He's putting them on the spot. He's saying, I need an answer from you. And they're silent. They're silent. They don't have an answer. Any answer they bring would only ridicule them. So they're smart. They keep their mouths shut. Matthew tells us then Jesus throws out another example. Okay, just a same interaction, but another example that Matthew records. Matthew chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. He said to them, this is Jesus, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Would you not do that? How much more valuable is a person then than a sheep? 
Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is right. Now, Jesus is not just randomly picking an example here. He's not just going, oh, you got a sheep, you can do this. No, the oral tradition, okay, the, the law that they're using, the religious leaders, it provided a caveat. If an animal fell in a hole on the Sabbath, even though technically you weren't really supposed to go down there and pick him up, you could because it would be wrong to just let that animal die because it's the Sabbath. So the teachers of the law said, you can go save that sheep. And Jesus is saying, um, who's more valuable? What's more valuable? A person or an animal? What's more valuable? Jesus is good. The religious leaders are stuck hard now. Their own interpretation of the law has provided an out for an animal. And Jesus is saying, why would it not be right to do something greater for a human? For a child of God, Jesus is using customary Jewish logic here. Okay, in customary Jewish logic, you, you go from lesser to greater. So a, a sheep is lesser than a human. So if you can do it for a sheep, why can't you do it for a human? They can't answer. There's no answer for what they're doing. They, they, think, they think God loves them. The religious leaders think God loves them so much because of how well they uphold the Sabbath law. They believe with everything in them that they are right and good with God because of how righteous they are, how pious they are. And yet Jesus is pushing, he's pushing. How much more, how much more does God love us when we care for those around us? How much more pleased is God with us? Because his love is finite. It's there and it's complete, regardless of who we are or what we do. But how much more does God love it when we care for those around us? Jesus is posing a massive, massive question here. What's more lawful? What's more good to save a life or destroy it? Verse 10, Luke chapter 6. He looked around at them all, and then he said to the man. So you, you maybe almost forgot about the guy standing up there going, are, are you talking to me? Are you talking to them? Like, are, are you going to do something? You brought me up here. A, it's a little awkward. Um, but Jesus remembers that there's a man standing here whose livelihood is in the balance. And, and he turns and he looks at the man. And he says, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. No atrophy. No loss of motor skill, just completely restored to whatever it was. That's what Jesus does. That's how Jesus can heal. He can heal completely and he can heal instantly. That's the power that he possesses. And then you've got to think, okay, you've got to think that Jesus kind of just went, bam, I did it. You're, you're trapping me, and I'm not stupid. I know that you, the religious leaders, you're trapping me. But you know what? I did it anyway. I did it, and now, yes, you're going to have ways to accuse me with your friends, but I did it, and this man right here, this man today, he's walking out of here ready to go back to work. Now, of course, he won't do it today because it's the Sabbath. 
But tomorrow, he gets to go back to laying bricks. He gets to go back to a livelihood and provide for his family. He gets to do that because of what I did. And yeah, I did it on the Sabbath, but I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And I did what is good. I did what's better. I chose right. And what you are prescribing is wrong. And what you think is most important is so skewed. Of course, of course, I did this. And I did it because my father loves his children. And when they're hurting, when they're broken, he will push down any wall to come to their rescue. I'm reminded in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son. Okay? If you're not familiar with the story, it's, it's pretty simple. There's a, there's a young man who absolutely disgraced his father, who demanded his inheritance before his father was dead, took that inheritance, went off, squandered it realized in his folly that he had made a huge mistake and comes home groveling, groveling to his father, thinking, I'll ask just to be a servant. I'll ask to live outside in the outer quarters. I I know he can never accept me as a son again because of what I've done, but I, I just need to go back home. And it says in Luke chapter 15 that the father got up, he girded his loins because they wore robes back then, and he ran to his son. In the first century, men didn't run. It was very undignified. Servants ran. Men, estate owners, they didn't run. But Jesus told this parable to illustrate how the father will become undignified when it becomes about his children. He'll do whatever it takes And Jesus looked at the religious leaders and went, I know that I just gave you ammunition. I know that I just did that. But I don't care. Because I did what is right for this child of God. I stepped in and met them right where they needed me to. The religious leaders were not too happy that Jesus had shown mercy. He'd healed a man to prove a point. It frustrated them because the rest of the room understood. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He just did something great. The Pharisees don't like to lose. Luke chapter 6, verse 11. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. The word furious there means mindless anger. You might call it rage. They've lost their minds. They're not thinking anymore. They're not processing. They're not weighing the options. They're not looking at this going, that's kind of cool for that guy. You know, maybe it is okay. It's mindless. It's unifocused. We've got to get rid of this guy. Mark actually tells us how far they're willing to go. Mark chapter 3, verse 6, same story. It says this, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. These religious elite, these men that were trying to teach the children of God about the love of the Father are like, we got to kill this guy. And they plotted with the Herodians. Now, I know most of you don't know who the Herodians are, but the Pharisees and the Herodians have nothing in common. 
They literally could not be further apart doctrinally. They could not be further apart in leadership structure. They hate one another, but they both have one common problem, and his name is Jesus, and they begin to conspire with one another to kill him. And this is the beginning. This is the beginning of why Jesus has to leave Galilee, head out into the wilderness for a year and a half, and not be seen in the region, because all of the people in power are seeking to kill him. It's interesting, though. This won't be the last time that the religious leaders mindlessly try to seek a way to hurt Jesus because their religious system is threatened. Their comfort is threatened. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at the religious leaders and I go, I I could never get there. I would never do that. I would never be so blind. I would never be so myopic. I would never put myself so far ahead of God and good and and mercy. But here's the reality. You push me out of my comfort zone far enough, and I can lose my mind. I've got a pretty good balance, I've got a pretty good structure, but I also like things to be under my control, and and you strip that away, and and I start to wonder, and I start to think, is this good? Am I I in control? And that's all that's happened here for these religious leaders. They're losing it. They're losing their control. They're losing their structure. They're losing everything they've built their lives upon, and Jesus is the one who's board by board, deconstructing it. And it pushes them to this point. And the lesson that we learn, church, the lesson that we learn from this is that our comfort and our structure cannot be religion and rules. It cannot be living in such a way to put God in our debt. It can't be because that can be ripped right out from underneath us so quickly. It has to be him. It has to be the truth that God loves you and he's for you and his mercies are new every day. And even if our comfort is wiped away, he is still God, he's still in control, and Jesus is still enough. That has to be our anchor. When I went to Bible college, I struggled. I struggled because uh, I went to a very legalistic school. I went to a school where you had to wear pants to class, and I wondered, why? Why? Why does God care if I wear pants to class? And, and the only answer I got was, well, this shows respect and reverence to God. And I'm like, is that what God desires? I, I just kept asking myself that. And then uh, I was told in, in class, and this is great information, I was told this. I was like, hey, if you're just studying to learn, that's, that's pride. You need to be studying so that you can know God more. And I couldn't put those two worlds together. I couldn't put, I have to wear pants to class to study God, but if I'm studying God just to learn more about him, then that's pride. I need a relationship with God. And, and these two worlds collided. And that's exactly what we see here in this narrative today. It's, it's two worlds. It's you do this to please God, or you just seek God to please God and to rejoice in him. And in church, it took me about five years after graduating college to realize that this piece is 
purely circumstance. It's just for looks and show. It's this piece. It's the piece that says God is everything I want and God is everything I need and God is the one who's merciful and God is the one who will become undignified to step into my mess and to heal me of my brokenness. It's God, it's God, it's God, it's God and he's all that we want. It took me a long time, a long, long, long time to see that and Jesus is trying to get religious leaders who are way smarter than me and who are far more ingrained in their systems and their doctrines than I ever was. He's trying to get them to see. And the beautiful piece of this story is that there's a man with a shriveled hand that went home completely restored and he was purely the illustration for the sermon. What's better? To do what is good or to do what is evil? To save a life or destroy it? The answer is so obvious. But I wonder today who feels like the man in the synagogue? Who feels like that man, the man that Jesus needs to break through kind of some of the circumstance, kind of some of the chaos that's going on, needs to break through the opposition? And who is the man in the synagogue today that needs to be healed? That needs to just trust that you don't have to do anything for God. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to follow all the rules. He just wants to step in to your circumstance and to transform you, to heal you. Who, who needs that? Who might be more like the religious leaders today, wanting to hold on to your comfort, wanting to hold on to your structure? Who needs Jesus to come in and transform the way you think, the way you believe, the way you seek God? Who, who needs that today? Who needs that five years it took me to relearn what it was to love God and to worship God and to receive his mercies? Who do you know? Who do you know that you need to help but your structure, your worldview is holding you back from helping them? You think, okay, if I do, they're just going to misuse my resources. If I do, they're not going to learn because they brought this on themselves. Who, who quotes the most famous verse in the Bible that God will only help those people who help themselves? Who, who uses that amazing scripture as their reason not to help? And then who needs to realize today that that's not in the Bible? That's a man-made tradition it never says that God only helps those who help themselves. It doesn't say that anywhere in there. In fact, it says the exact opposite. God comes to help those who can't help themselves. God comes to be for people. Who needs to show mercy and grace to someone today and, and let go of their constructs and their systems? I don't know what you need to do. I don't know how this passage is moving you, but I know this, I know this today. God has something great in store for each and every one of us. And it is not a system of rules and laws that we must follow. It is a relationship with him that will transform us from the inside out. That will bring you peace and hope and joy. That will heal and restore. And all he wants more than anything else is your heart pray today that you give it to him. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, for the mercy that you show, for the power of your son, Jesus, for the hope that we can have in him. And I ask today that we would be renewed and restored by you, by your power, that our love for you would be complete because your love for us is. It's your name we pray. Amen.